welcome to the Unknown Warrior podcast. Very happy today to say we're joined by Dan Gordon and Michael Condren, who are the uh, writer and the star of a new play that's been written at the moment called Among the Kings, which is based on the book by Mark Scott, who Mark we spoke to before. So this is a play that's going to kind of bring to life a bit of the story of the Unknown Warrior and the char- some of the characters we've spoken about in previous episodes and the kind of tale around that and also looking heavily into the Irish connection to that because Dan and Michael are based over in Northern Ireland. So many thanks to you both for joining us. Much appreciated. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So to start us off then, Dan, give us your kind of your story into the Unknown Warrior story, as it were. How did you first kind of hear about it and how did you get interested in kind of bringing this to life on the stage, as it were? Well, it's it's one of those serendipitous things that uh, you don't set out to do it and uh, it kind of happens. I've been making documentaries uh, as well as being an actor and a director. Because I live in Northern Ireland, You know, it's, it's harder to just be on stage all the time. You kind of have other strings to your bows. And I find myself writing and directing um, as well as acting and performing. And then I got sucked into documentaries. And I've done about 25 documentaries in various forms, as usually as a presenter, uh, but also co-authoring as well. And I recently, I wrote a play about the comedian Frank Carson and performed it and took it to Edinburgh Festival and toured it around Ireland and so on and um, it was a biographical piece and I had cooperation from his family they had kind of approached me and I made, I also because I'd been making documentaries I spoke to the guys that I worked with in double band uh, films who had made several docs with and they said this would be a good subject so why don't we make a documentary about you playing Frank so I did that and at the same time they were working with Mark Scott on The Man Who Shot the Great War, which was his stuff about George Hackney and the fact that he was in the 36th Ulster Division. He was possibly a, probably a sniper, but he also took a camera um, with him and uh, and spent a period of time taking high quality and extraordinary photographs with the eye of someone who was looking, used to looking through uh, a site. We didn't actually hook up, but I was I was really impressed with what Mark did and the kind of information. I mean, the fact he was able to go back to France and find the locations of some of these photographs and recreate them was astounding, uh, you know, a hundred years later. And I was, I was very impressed by him, but it was a mutual friend. The guy who is my works with me as my production manager um, when I've been doing plays, we've known each other a long time, he also coincidentally knew Mark and said, this man has written a book. Um, I think you might be interested uh, in meeting him. And uh, then the, the connection set fell in and, then, then Mark and I were introduced. And from that, then we began the partnership, which is kind of an uneven partnership because Mark does all the work and then I do, the, I do my bit and add the froth on the top. But that, that's the way it kind of uh, materialised and began. That's fantastic. And then, so where did you kind of, I mean, kind of for both of you really, like where did you start with that book then to bring these facts kind of off the page because obviously like we've said like me and Jace have been on this journey of discovery on the unknown warrior story and we've met all these people you know through the history books and through you know evidence and things like that but it's another level to kind of take that history and kind of apply that to you know a theatrical setting and it's interesting for us to as I say interesting for us to kind of see these uh, characters kind of materialize you know before our eyes. Yeah, I mean, we, I, I've been doing this a while. Um, I previously, Michael and I worked together a lot. I would have directed Michael in a lot of play, everything from Molly Ayers to uh, an autobiographical play I wrote about my own father, who was a shipyard worker. We called it The Boat Factory. And Michael and I did it as a two-hander. We took it to New York. We took it to Edinburgh. We took it to London. Michael has always been a very good uh, counterbalance to the work that I do. He's very tuned into it. And uh, I kind of saw a photograph 
of the main player Fitz, Samuel Ernest Sidney Fitzsimons, who was the man who was the executive officer on the Warrior story, and we'll get on to that, who was from Belfast. I saw a photograph of him uh, when I started to talk to Mark, and I was immediately struck he looked a bit like Michael. But I thought I would do this play as the older man, this older Fitz character, and try and bring it to life and do it as a kind of a memory play. I have to confess, I'm, I'm not a great authority on World War One or even World War Two. I mean, I have a, a passing interest, um, which I think was a good thing because it allowed me then to um, approach it very sort of uh, objectively, I think, and ask hard questions of Mark. And um, I'm more interested in the theatricality and the entertainment value. And will people be able to follow the story? Because it is a great story, but it is complicated. From that point of view, I thought I would do it as a memory play. And uh, with my experience of doing other plays, it began as a memory play. I looked at other memory plays that I'd been involved with, other ones that I'd seen. I submerged myself in, I'd, I'd done some things before. I, I did a play about the Somme because of the Ulster connection. Uh, I kind of put together a miscellany of things after we had Union Jack flag protests here in Northern Ireland when the flag was taken off the city hall. And um, they kind of evoked particularly the memory of the Somme and the UVF and uh, their involvement. And it, it was a quite a destructive process. So I made a documentary and I did a play with some young men from the area, young men, some of whom had been getting arrested because they were protesting about this flag being taken down off the city hall. And uh, we, we examined what it was like on the Somme. So I got an insight through people like Philip Orr, Nigel Henderson, uh, their local historians here in Northern Ireland. And they were very helpful to me uh, and educating me about it. Also, I had directed Observe the Sons of Ulster Marching Towards the Somme by Frank McGuinness. And I did it in a prison with young men of the right age. And again, I was very fortunate in that some of the officers had particular interest in the war and they gave me a great education. One even managed to find the records of my great uncle who disappeared at the Battle of Cambrai. And he got me the paperwork to that. And, and again, an introduction that I had never had to all of that background and what this thing was about. And I suppose I'm, I'm giving you all this information because I have to submerge myself in this background of stuff and feed off what I already know and uh, where I'm coming from in an attempt to do justice to what is an extraordinary story and, and, uh, and a group of people who, uh, as Mark has unearthed, and I come back to that, Mark Scott is the man who's done eight years plus work putting together an incredible book and making incredible discoveries along with yourselves, uh, may I add, to, to bring this to somebody like me to then let it out into the general public. So I suppose that that's the beginnings of it. And then when Mark showed me the book in early earlier form, it was, it was almost ready, I have to say. So then I took that opportunity then to go through the book, get the material and decide, right, we're going to put it on stage. And what, what was it about Mark's book and, and the story of the Unknown Warrior that really fired you up to, to want to recreate this as, as a play? It was Mark himself. It was Mark's commitment and passion and knowledge that impressed me in the first place. You know, if you're going to get into a canoe with somebody and maybe the canoe's got holes in it, you want that somebody to be an ancient mariner. You want that somebody to know what he's doing and know which direction to take you and, and, and bail it out and do all of that with this. I'll stop that metaphor now. But um, it was Mark who impressed me. And then through that, 
the people involved in the story impressed me as he unfolded it. And it really takes time to understand what was going on, to go right back to Fabian Ware and the, the fact that, you know, there was someone who had the concern to bury all these young men who were losing their lives and identify where they were, uh, right through to Realton. Uh, and his idea that he parks and then he brings back and then convincing Lloyd George and the King and how it took on a life of its own. General McDonough, General Wyatt, Colonel Gell, all of the people involved in the selection process, these people started to come to life. And they're not just names to me now, because through Mark, he would say, well, here's a picture at St. Paul, which was the headquarters for the Department of Graves and Registration and Inquiries. And all of these people in this group, these guys did this. These were involved in this. And being an Ulster man, I mean, this was pre-partition in 1920, before Northern Ireland became Northern Ireland. It was all one island of Ireland. The, the Irish input and ultimately the Ulster input from people like Fitzsimons, uh, who then brought on board Miller Smith, who I think was from Dromore and went to the same school as my children in Belfast, and uh, Henry Williams, whose father was from Belfast and he was born in Dublin, and I think his mother was from Meath or something like that. You can see an Ulster man, like a Welshman or a Scotsman, if they're given a job to do, they kind of surround themselves with guys who are in the same canoe, who know how to sail it, who can be trusted. Plus, they used officers as well when he was given that, uh, to my understanding. They used all officers. There were no lesser ranks. And, um, and then you've got this miraculous thing of people like Sir Cedric Hardwick, who was lieutenant at the time, popping up in the story as part of the Guard of Honour, or uh, Vera Brodie, a member of the Scottish aristocracy, who's giving an account of what she saw the following morning once they'd selected the warrior. So all of these elements are all jumping out and these people start to take on a reality and a humanity and you realise they're not just black and white images on a photograph. And that's where Michael came in because when I wrote the first line of the piece and I said it in my head aloud because I'd seen a photograph of Fitz in 1966 when he'd gone back to the Somme on the 50th anniversary and there were celebrations and film footage and so on. And I thought, well, I could play him. You know, I'm, I'm almost about to be 60. I realized when I said the line, this can't be an old man telling the story. This has to be a younger man who is still in the play, is still part of it. It's a kind of a past present thing that he's doing. So as he tells you it, it's happening to him. And I immediately then thought this, I can't say these words. These words are for Michael. And Michael, where do you, where do you start then with all that information that Mark's got and that Dan's got down into this play? Where do you kind of start with all that history and then try and put that into the characters that you've got to kind of portray? Is that a bit of a daunting kind of thing initially? Because like we say, the Unknown Warrior story is like a, it's a complicated story, you know, it's a complicated thing to kind of get your head around. Well, well, how it started for me was uh, Dan and I, obviously I've worked with Dan said so much, I'm going to sort of repeat, but Dan and I have worked so much together over many years. And not only have I worked with him, I regard him as like one of my best friends as well. So, and, and we're kind of like that friendship where if we don't speak for six months, it's fine, you just pick up. And I was lying in bed actually, and I got a photograph through of Fitz. And I obviously had zero knowledge of this photograph, this story. I just got a photograph through. And I was like, oh, here we go. And I knew it immediately had meant something to Dan. And I just replied, what is this? And then he, he just sort of started drip through. He just said, look, I might need you to, to help me with something I'm working on. And first and foremost, and I, you know, I'm not just saying this because he's on this call, obviously, you know, I would, I would do anything to help him, whatever the subject matter was. 
Um, so he sent me some information through and it was very convoluted for me. I mean, I'm a history buff. I'm a, I'm a bit of a nerd. I studied World War II history at university and A-level and I love all of that sort of stuff, but it is a story that I'm not familiar with. So he started, you know, he called me and just sort of started going through the finer points of the story. And to be honest with you and him, it was going way over my head because there were so many people involved. And Dan just said, look, come down to the house. We'll have a cup of tea and we'll discuss it. And I went down and he just explained everything to me. And again, and I am still trying to grasp a lot of this information. You know, as Dan rightly says, you know, Mark has put so much research into this and knows so much about it. Dan has done the same for the play and knows so much about it. So for me, I am coming to this really new. And again, I agree with Dan, it's so good to come to something so objectively. So we had further meetings at Dan's and Mark was present at one of them. And just even at that, I could just tell how passionate Mark was about the subject, even down to, you know, correcting my pronunciations of, you know, certain areas, you know, Ypres and, you know, Ian and places like that and going, no, this needs to be perfect. This needs to be the, the, exactly on the money for this story. It is so important. And again, Dan is a bit of a perfectionist with regards to work, uh, with regards to having everything exactly right. So we had several rehearsals where I began to understand the characters and the and the story more and then you become involved in it these people aren't just a photograph they're not just a story that dan tells me or mark has written and i suppose as an actor and what i want to do for dan for myself is to be involved in the thoughts and the feelings of those particular people because there, there has to be dan talked about a show that we did a two-hander together called the boat factory which was hugely successful and I think I played, I can't remember, something like 60 different people in that multi-role sort of theatre has always been something that, I, that I've loved, just being different characters. As I always say to, to people or young students, your material is free on the street. Watch people, ads. it always sounds a bit weird, but I watch people and I just have a fascination with just, just different people, the way they walk, the way they talk, everything about them. And I think with the Boat Factory, when we originally did that, what I learned about that was these people had to be real, but it was a comedy. And what I learned about that was it's really, really important to not make fun or caricature people, in, even in a comedy. So when Dan asked me to do this and we decided to have people like Wyatt, the most important thing for me in, in that little video and in this play and going forward is a respect to everybody. And I'm still learning and I hope to learn more through Mark and through Dan. But like everything else, it starts with a photograph Dan sends you through on a WhatsApp and then you just become involved. So I just kind of think from, from my point of view, you know, the little clips that we have online of General Wyatt and Tronson, I'm just trying to make those people real because the story is real and the families are real. And, and this is still so important, particularly at, at this time that, that, that we're at. I still probably will have to go and do a lot of research myself. And because unless I have a fully rounded knowledge of everything that went on, then that means that I'm not giving an, an absolutely true and real account of all of the people involved. But I just kind of think it, it's the reality. And I think that's something that from an acting point of view and literally from an acting point of view that I just have to focus on is, is, is creating a reality for Mark and for Dan and ultimately for the people who, who are involved in the story and their families, I guess. Have you had any, any contact with the families to be able to sort of try and flesh out some of these, some of these characters and bring some of the traits through that, that they had, you know, from, from memories? There was a, a girl, Linda McCauley, came down to the recording of that little piece that we did, and she is Fitz's niece. When she was there and we recorded the first thing, you know, she just said to Dan that, you know, those words are beautiful and it's really, really nice. And, you know, and you could see that that had an immediate impact. With regards to characterization, no, I mean, I, I, 
at this stage haven't seen anything to to sort of work on almost it's uh, you know i suppose it's a bit of a blank page for me but the more research that i do then i'll be able to sort of maybe take little sort of idiosyncrasies or listen to other stories from family um but uh, you know the girl who runs the Somme heritage center not a relative but when we went down to sort of you know record this stuff you know because i could see you know the passion and you know the detail and that this that this means to somebody and it's and because it's not a story that i was familiar with or i am fully familiar with i didn't feel that passion i have to be totally honest with you i was there in the role of just performing for dan and basically you know doing what i was told say your lines and don't bump into the furniture and then and then and then you become invested because you see how important it is how important it is to guys like yourself how important it is you know that you know, I, 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 I will be totally honest with you, you know, probably I'm 42 years of age and, you know, I watched Remembrance Sunday this year with an eye that I that I haven't before. I, I can't, and I kind of think that's really important. It's really important for me. It's really important. I mean, obviously Dan's going to talk about the rest of this, but, you know, one of the things is that, that Irish connection or Northern Irish connection, whichever way you want to, you look at it. Um, you know, I was reading about, you know, the, the certain regiments, the dubs, or, you know, the comics, you know, I was reading, you know, Fusiliers, I think it was, you know, and I was, I just looked at at, at this year's, you know, Remembrance Day in, in a totally different way. And I was kind of thinking to myself, more people need to know fully the extent of this, the extent of this story and other people's stories. And it is your job, Michael, to do the best job that you can possibly do for Dan and for everybody else. So, so getting to meet Linda, getting to see people who run the Somme Heritage Centre, I can see that passion there. And, um, and that fills me with passion and that, that sort of makes me want to do the best that I possibly can for, for everybody involved. And I was going to say, Dan, obviously we know that this story is incredibly complex, really, with a number of different characters and, and trying to follow everything that's going on. How did you kind of approach enabling the audience to be able to keep track of everything that's that's going on the different characters and, and where we are in the story basically stealing somebody else's ideas is the way to do it <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yes you, the theatricality of it is 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 really important and uh, being able to uh, come in sit down after you've had a day's work uh, you've paid money to see something and then not having to work too hard to understand what's going on uh, is kind of what we try to do uh, for, for audiences and for people. And we've had a difficult time because obviously with the pandemic going on, you know, rehearsals were very difficult for this. So we had initially attempted to have like 30 people come and see it and then put it out in Remembrance Sunday. But that all just went by the by. We weren't even even able to, to do any more than just get a few of ourselves together to uh, film uh, the, the extracts that we managed to get out and the interview that we got out with. To, to get that theatricality, those ideas, uh, a, a couple of friends of mine were and Michael's was in were in Tinker Taylor, uh, Soldier Spy by John Le Carre, the uh, recent film, Gary Oldman film. Uh, one of them, Kieran Hines, uh, appeared stuck to a chessman, uh, a photograph as 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 a kind of a, a metaphor for the what was going on with the spies to try and demonstrate who was who, and I thought it was a terribly clever idea. And I've kind of taken that a little further insofar as I stuck all the main characters to the chessmen and just trying to decide who was a knight and who was a rook and who was a king. I thought I could extend that metaphor and I thought the chessmen of a military kind of 
background as well. So I stuck all these guys to a, a set of chess men and, uh, and started to label them and work them out. And it hit me that I was able to get big chess men. You can get them for hotels and for leisure centers. They're about two, two, three feet high. And I thought that would make a great set and an easy way to kind of show visually what's going on. Because theatrically, it's difficult when there's only one person there. Michael is magnificent at creating a, a room full of people. But if he has a little bit of help, um, so you see a, a visual image of these people, which we used a little bit in the in the video that we did. But that's where I'm on draft seven of the play. When I wrote Boat Factory and I wrote Frank Carson, we were up around 17, 18 drafts. So there will still there's still a fair bit of work to do. Um, and and, and we'll work on that because when we get onto the floor, Michael as a performer will bring more to it and things will change as well again, even in dialogue and, and movement. So that was that was how I thought we could we can increase the theatricality of it by having these chessmen. And then Netflix very helpfully have now introduced a, a thing called the Queen's Gambit, which is a very popular television program, and suddenly chess is back in vogue. So I've I've really hit on it. Everybody will think that I've stolen it from the Queen's Gambit, when in fact I've stolen it from John Lee carry um, the hardest thing i think is is the pronunciation of a lot of the a lot of the places you know ypres fine i got that it's not wipers i'm still trying to get i'm still trying to get around as why shot uh something white sheets that was known by the, the british soldiers i'm still trying to get around the pronunciation for that and the 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 place where mark uh feels and is fairly certain that the the three unknown warriors who were not selected to be buried in Westminster Abbey, uh, the place where he uh, feels they are buried, the pronunciation of that as well, which is in his book. But uh, so to approaching these people and approaching this story uh, is quite an extraordinary privilege and an honour and something that I'm, and myself, you've heard, Michael, uh, we've, we've both bought into and hopefully we can bring that in a visual way as well as an oral way. I think the major thing that I've discovered in writing the memory play like this is that a thing called the past present. So I start to tell you a story and then suddenly I'm in that story and my wife is there and my son is there and I'm playing both of those as well as myself and you're hearing them. And people like Eddie Izzard or Billy Connolly, they, they do it. They've done it for years. You know, suddenly Eddie Izzard is talking to a baboon in a queue, you know, and, and he's playing the baboon. What are you doing here? Oh, somebody told me to stand here. You know, and that's it. And it's completely believable. And it's it's finding that level of engagement for an audience is what we are after. Can I just jump in there very quickly? It was just something that Dan said there, and I just kind of want to give people a bit of an insight into how Dan works as a director. Dan shouts at you for not pronouncing names that he can't pronounce himself. Um, <laughs> he's like, like oh, you don't say it that way, you say it this way. Actually, I can't say it. So that's just, just why we have that on record. I just want that on record. Just put that out there. It's good to clear that out, yeah. <laughs> And actually, just while you're laughing there, that is another big part of Fitz and the guys he was with. I think they had a lot of fun. I think in, in very bleak, bleak circumstances, I've seen photographs that aren't posed of Fitz in his study, where he is, for example, beside a looted tablecloth that belonged to Ludendorff, uh, you know, and uh, he drove around in a, um, a German staff car that they'd nicked and he had it for some considerable time. Those guys, I think, had had to have some sort of safety valve, had to let off steam. And we, we're we trying to bring that to, to the, the, the play. And the most successful version, you haven't seen any of it yet, but Miller Smith 
um, who ended up as a general, I think, major general, gives a very vivid account of his role in driving an ambulance from St. Paul to the Albert Bopam Road, where he was, he says he, he and others buried the three warriors who were not selected after a short service from, from the minister that was with them. And he talks about the wind. There were no windows in it. There were no doors in it. That was freezing. I had to get out and run up and down the road to keep warm. The guys in the back were singing hymns. Well, it started as hymns, but they had brandy, so they were singing other stuff as well. And not in an irreverent way, but in a way to just keep their own spirits up and keep it human. And then in, in the piece, Michael will have to sing Mademoiselle from Armchairs uh, and, and a few other little choice numbers as Miller Smith is trying to keep himself warm and driving up the road and join in with the boys in the back. I think that's that sense of reality in, in that they are real people with real uh, faults and real virtues and real loves and hates and all of the things that, that go with them. And th those characters are kind of evolving and coming out a little bit from the way they are, the, the accounts go. And thinking about those people then, obviously we, we touched on it briefly uh, earlier on, but the Irish and Northern Irish connection to the story is another you know, angle that obviously you guys are bringing out with the play and with Mark with his book as well. And how important is that to kind of get that angle of the story out? Because, you know, we've spoken before in previous podcasts, there was at the base in St. Paul, they had a hockey match and there was the rest of the world versus Ireland, just because there was so many Irish, <laughs> so many soldiers there from Ireland that were there. So they could feel the full team and everyone else was like, oh, we'll have to club together and see if we can beat them. But how important is that for you guys to kind of get that uh, bits, you know, get that kind of Irish connection out for the story as well? For me, I have to, there's a caveat this story. I was originally born in Toronto, but I was no, I only stayed there till I was one. Um, you know, 42 now. Um, I am very, very proud to be from Belfast. I'm very proud to be from Northern Ireland. I'm very proud to be from the island of Ireland, whichever way you know you want it, you want to look at it. And I think that's maybe you know part of the problem. And you know, for me, I just I said earlier on about watching Remembrance Sunday with a different eye on this, but I just felt a, a real sense of pride about yet again about Northern Ireland, about my city. Um, and it's something that, you know, with Dan that we worked with before, which I, 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 just, I just think comes through with all of Dan's writing is his pride uh, in, in the city where he comes from. And I, I kind of think as I educate myself more, you know, I went down to the, the Somme Heritage Centre and, and learned about, you know, it on an all island basis, you know, there were people from Dublin, who, you know, who, who have died, or people from all over Ireland who have died. And I kind of think it's really, really important that something like this reaches as many people as it possibly can across the island. And I suppose, you know, I, I don't want to be too, this, this thing, too sentimental, but, you know, if, if there was something, if, if there's an opportunity to unify people, to make people aware of other sides of the story that you weren't aware of previously, then something like this is really, really important because there are people out there who sadly don't know. I, I feel I am, you know, feeling the passion that Mark and Dan feel about this and starting to feel about this because I'm learning about it. And I kind of think, you know, people from Northern Ireland need to know these stories, need to know these people. And I think like, you know, if, if anything, like the impact it has had on me and will continue to have on me, it will have that impact upon them. So I think as an Irish person, Northern Irish person, whichever way you want to use that terminology, I think it's really important that, that people know about these stories, know about these guys, know about the unknown warrior. You know, it, it, could, it could be anybody. And I think that's important. It could be anybody. It could be, it could be your son. 
And I just kind of think that, 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 that potentially the people need to see this. It would be a, a really good thing to, to educate a wider community. Personally, that's a, that's a personal thing. Yeah, I think the fact, I mean, it was slightly coincidental in some ways that it was an Irishman who was there, an Ulster man who was there and given the order to do it. I mean, Fitz, again, Mark has unearthed this material uh, with the help of Carol in, in the Psalm Heritage Centre and, and put it online of Fitz confessing to being the uh, executive officer on the Unknown Warrior. And he says that we submitted schemes and mine was accepted. Now, Fitz was an organiser. He had previously uh, won the MBE for his organisational skills when he uh, reorganised the, uh, I think, the 5th or the 4th Army Training School. So he won that MBE when he was about 27. So he was a good organiser. He'd been a teacher for three years in East Belfast in Lomond Avenue School, and the inspectorate wrote a report that uh, that said he was, he was absolutely first class and there was nothing that they would change. Now, I trained as a teacher. You want to see my report? You know, I mean, they don't, they don't hand those out like that uh, about you know, could do better. Fitz was the kind of man who actually kept the reference that was written by the headmaster of the school that he worked in. That is, again, an accolade, which we've included in the play, uh, saying that he was a tremendous teacher. So being such a good organiser, he wrote and submitted the scheme. He didn't have the idea. I mean, he's, no one's pretending he had the idea of this, but it was, how do you do it? You go and fix it. Do it. Make sure nobody finds out who this warrior is and give me a selection of, of a number of bodies. There are were, there were a couple of things that have, that have kind of emerged in the writing of the play. When I looked at this and what Mark told me about how people organise things, I mean, it's, it's done sort of counter-terrorism organisations have a difficulty in, in finding terrorists because they would do this because it's, they work in a cell system and some people are only given the information that they need to know. So then if they're caught or they give information away to anybody, then it doesn't go any further. They can't implicate anyone else. And when Shakespeare wrote his plays, he only gave the actors their parts. He didn't give them the complete play because they could have cleared off and handed it to somebody up the road or they could have claimed they've written it themselves. And I think there was an element of that that, um, and again, I'm sure military experts will tell me that this was thought up by the military in the first place, that, you know, they only gave the information. First of all, Fitz only got officers. And secondly, he only told them what they needed to know. And that's why I think, uh, and Mark had pointed this out, why there are gaps in information, why Miller Smith thinks it stopped at the Albert Bopam Road, why Wyatt thinks it stopped in the St. Paul graveyard, why Fisher thinks possibly it finished with him. Um, because his secret orders that you guys came across that they said, don't tell anyone. And uh, three weeks or four weeks after he had done it, he leaves the army. Either what? We don't know why. Was it a handshake? Was it because he wasn't allowed to mark the spots where he buried these, these men? Who knows? But people all had fragments of information. It's like the picture on the front of the jigsaw box. We think only fits and maybe if some others above him had that full picture. I don't know, but that's that's the beauty of the play. And the play, is, to some extent, is based on reality. It's like those, those films that go, based on a true story. You know, that this is based on a true story. I'm not claiming to be 100% factually correct. When I have Miller Smith singing in the ambulance, who knows what he sang, if he sang at all, what the guys in the back sang. 
you know, but it gives it a life. It, it gives it, uh, it projects something. And I think you watch it in that spirit. I think that's for me. That was why the the Fitz footage was was so important because, like you say, we've got photographs of these people, but to hear them speak about their involvement in the Unknown Warrior is just so rare. And I think that, that kind of works to disconnect people from the First World War in the same way as the Second World War is. There's a lot more footage of people talking about it, and people can connect with it more. But the the First World War kind of just ends up being that little bit distant. Where I think that's where your play is so fantastic in that we've researched these people. We can see their their photographs and their faces sat together uh, in these group shots. But but you're able to to bring these characters to life, which I think for us was really poignant actually to be able to hear Tronson or Fitz or Fisher or any of these people speak and become people again and, and talk about their involvement. And people who've never really had the recognition as well compared to maybe Wyatt or other people where they're kind of known within the story, but these are the people who actually did it in the background, didn't go seeking glory. Um, and I think that's really, really powerful. I know you haven't finished the play yet and it's and it's it's not ready to be performed yet, but what kind of initial feedback have you had from people when you've had the snippets out there on social media and stuff? How's the feedback been? My dad is my harshest critic. Whenever I've done any plays in my career, whenever I walk off stage, he goes, well done, son, that other guy was great. <laughs> um, that's, he's just done that his whole life. And uh, so he, he watched the, the interview with Mark at the Sum Heritage Centre and, and, and the snippets. And this is, this is genuine. He, <laughs> and I get on very well with my dad. He just watched that WhatsApp me and he just said, he just said, he says, I thought that was fantastic. He just said, I really, really enjoyed that. You know, he's a bit of a history nerd himself. And uh, he just said he really, really liked it. So for me, uh, genuinely, that is a, that is a benchmark. Yeah, you know what? You know, just even even minor things on Twitter. You know, I had retweeted some of the stuff, and people were, you know, bouncing back to me privately and just going, "This is really good. This is really exciting." And you know, so for me, you know, I am still very new to this, so I I can give my feedback. I'm still giving my feedback as an audience to Dan, and you know, Dan going, "Well, how do you think this works?" Or you know. And I, and I, Dan will tell you this, if, if we're working together, he came over to my house and I would go, look, Dan, as an audience member, I just don't understand that little bit of the story. I think that needs maybe tidied up a bit, either, or, or can you just make me understand that a little bit more? So I'm still giving, from an audience point of view, feedback, and I absolutely love it. And the stuff that I receive from friends, and as I say, from my family and from just watching the YouTube stuff, they just sort of just said, like, you know, Dan's on the, you know, after something like the Boat Factory's on the, you know, another winner here because this is a really, really important story. And, and like people have just said to me, they just want, they want to know the rest of it. Yeah, the feedback I've had has been very positive as well, you know, and I kind of am a bit kind of going reluctant to take praise because I feel it's not really ready yet. I mean, with the pandemic, we've been really set back and I have been more generous with my allowing myself time to develop stuff, but I think I need to. You know, I've been immersing myself and, and it's been good that there's stuff out there like 1917. I think the, the, the First World War, World War One, is such a destructive event in humanity. And, and some of the figures are, are terrifying of how those young men uh, stepped out and were just eviscerated in many cases, you know, and there was nothing there for families. And I think, again, in, in discussing some of the resonances of this warrior, unconsciously and indirectly, you know, in Northern Ireland, we experienced uh, a group of people that are known as the disappeared, which has happened in other countries as well, where during the war, for want of a better word, that went on here, people just vanished and their families did not get their bodies back. 
and uh, there are still several missing. And, and even in, in modern times, when a young child goes missing, the national loss that is felt there, when we know of these people and you go, they haven't found that, they never find that child. What happened to that child or that person? And, and people go missing. I think that is what the warrior helped to mend after the war. And it was a brilliant, brilliant concept. And it didn't need to be pushed in as hard a, a way as other things. I mean, yes, there were difficulties with it and I've read about them, but it moved along, took on that life. And those people who then came to pay their respects, uh, the stories of people bringing flowers from a garden that their son had grown from Scotland and the flowers were dead by the time they got to the Westminster Abbey, but they had to be there. The tradition of the the the, the wreaths of royal brides going on to the grave, the fact that um, you're not allowed to walk on the grave. I think there's just a reverence and an exceptionality and uniqueness about this whole story that deserves to be revisited, and it will be revisited over the years as as these things are. But it's it's kind of remarkable that Mark has found all of this material, that guys like yourselves are behind it. And we're, Michael and I are tailcoating on and uh, doing our little bit uh, to, to continue the, the tradition of it. I think it's an important thing and it does unify people. You know, that that symbolism is, is so very important. So without getting too maudlin about the thing, but it, it is a brilliant conceit and, and something that I'm very proud to now understand much more fully. I think there is an appetite for it. Can I just add a, just a very quickly, a 30-second thing that just, just talking to Dan and the question has just brought back in my in my head. And it's just about how, it, the story of my girlfriend, she, um, she lives and works in Paris, so I would be in Paris quite a bit. And I went to, for the first time um, in my life, I went to uh, Les Invalides. And obviously, you know, it, you know, it's a war museum. And uh, and it's just talking about that World War One because we are so much more aware of World War Two and because the interviews are there that to a certain extent again I, I was uneducated slightly uh, about World War One and the, and the history behind it and you know when I went to Les on the lead I spent the majority of my time in the World War One sort of section a huge section of it just looking at the numbers and not being able to take those numbers in. Dan talks about it in the, in the snippet, in the song, the amount of people that were killed. The, you know, every five seconds, somebody was killed for 24 hours. It's, it's, it's hard to take in. It's hard for me to take in. I was unaware of that figure. And it's just about the little things that sort of, and I think this is why a play like Dan's can be, can, can be really important because I, whenever I was walking through Les Envolides, I just something that I just stopped at one tiny thing in the whole museum. And it was a, it was four bullet casings from World War One that had been welded together. I don't know how the person who had done it in the trenches had done it, but they'd done it in the trenches. And it was four gold. I have the photograph. I'll send it to you, Dan. Um, four gold, um, really like shiny bullet cases that had been welded together. And it had been done as a crucifix. And on the crucifix, Jesus was on the crucifix. So it had been done as a crucifix. And they had just found this. Just find it. Nobody knows who had done it. It was just found on the battlefield. And no name to it, nobody attached to it. And I, I can remember looking at that thinking, I will never know who produced that unbelievable piece of art. And nobody will. And that to me is a sin. Because somebody did that. And it's for, it, it could have been forgotten and it's not. And it's on that wall. And it was just literally that one tiny thing blew my mind and gave me a sense of connection to something that I didn't know 
about and I think that's what Dan's play will do no, it's an incredibly powerful way to think about it. And like you say, it's about bringing those people to life, bringing those stories to life, which I think the play will do and has done from what we've watched fantastically well. It's been amazing to speak to you guys today. I really appreciate you all taking the time. We're both incredibly excited to see the play once it's ready to be performed. And I can honestly strongly recommend that anybody who's listened to the podcast keeps an eye on uh, any updates. And have you got anywhere where you're going to be posting sort of uh, updates with regards to the play and where people can find out when it's going to be performed when it's ready i think the some heritage center in northern ireland we hope to do it there at some stage um, i would like to premiere it probably down or, or there if we can get permission it's when the pandemic ends is the is the the, the hope um, that we do it but i would say keep your eye on their website um because they have a facebook place as well and we'll certainly come through squeaky pedal too we'll be talking to you guys we definitely will keep in touch with you guys and keep it up well. Again, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Really excited to uh, to be able to watch the play once it's ready. And uh, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Care, thank you.